We, we are thankful, our Father, that you are different from us. We thank you that you are eternal. We thank you that you have always existed. That, that is a staggering concept. And we think of time and we think, how is it that someone can exist who's never been created? But you've always been. And in, in, in fact, you created time. You're outside of time. You've always been. You're not like us. We were conceived and um, we were born and we're going to live for a very, very short time. And then we're going to die. And then we're going to continue to exist forever. But we all had a beginning. We're creatures. You're the creator. And you have always been. And not only are you eternal, but... Uh, you have all wisdom, and we don't, so we need you. You promised to give us your wisdom, if we'll ask. You have, uh, you have all power, and we don't. We, we have a limited amount of power in certain areas that you have given to us, but uh, sometimes we get skewered in our thinking, and we think that... Uh, we have more than we have, and you can so easily remind us through changing our circumstances of how weak we are. We, uh, we exercise power, we exercise energy, and we get tired, and we get fatigued, and we have to go to sleep. You've never lost an ounce of energy. You've never been fatigued. That's remarkable. You know all things. You are everywhere. We're just rehearsing in our minds here who you are and what you are like. Just to give ourselves perspective today on uh, March 12th. Because it's so easy to get life out of perspective. We're running around, we're doing the things we're supposed to do. Uh, we're busy, we're trying to make a living, trying to take care of a family, trying to be responsible at work. We, we've, got, we've got a lot of things we're juggling, and as we're juggling those things, we're, we're hit with different uh, issues, with different uh, responsibilities, with things that uh, we didn't anticipate. And, and sometimes just trying to meet all those things, we get a little out of balance and a little out of whack. So it's really good to take a few minutes and think about who you are and that you are our Father. And you are intimately acquainted with all of our ways. And you are intimately acquainted with everything that's going on in our lives. And you are very, very interested in every detail of our lives. So we just stop for a minute. And we ponder that as we pray. And the stuff that we're facing, and the stuff that we're carrying, we give it to you. And we ask for wisdom. We ask for direction. We ask that you will uh, give us what we need for that meeting that we're thinking about that's coming here before long, and we really need to be sharp. We're just, Lord, we're, we're dependent on you. And we want to acknowledge that. Now tonight, we ask that you will instruct us and encourage us 
Remind us of what, tr- of what is true. Remind us of what is reality. We're living in a world that does not deal with reality. They don't think about death. They don't think about what's true. We don't want to be like that. We used to be like that. We don't want to be like that anymore. Make this time uh, significant for each guy who's taken his time to be here tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus, chapter 3. And we are on the closing stretch of Titus. Now, I need to say this to you. If, if, if you teach the Bible, or if you're a preacher, when you come to the end of these epistles, it can be a challenge. And the reason it can be a challenge is, is that inevitably, as, as, um, as Paul is winding down, he moves into the, um, the personal mode. He's wrapping up. He's pretty much said everything that he wants to say in the letter. So the guts of it, he's already dealt with. Here he is in Titus talking to this uh, uh, young associate who he's left in Crete to get things squared away. He, he got the church going. He had to move on to the next town. So as you know, if you've been with us, he told Titus to set in order what remains. Get it fixed. Fix the broken bone. Um, get it set right. Appoint leaders. And now he's coming into the end, to the end of the letter. And if you're a teacher or, or you've ever preached through these epistles, when you get to this last stretch, it can be kind of challenging. And, and let me tell you why it can be challenging. In fact, let me read for you the passage. And you tell me if you don't think this is challenging to teach and to preach and to keep people interested, to be real honest. Uh, Verse 12 of Titus chapter 3. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, that was life-changing to me. (laughs) Now, I'm not mocking here, but there are certain passages of Scripture that just jump out and grab us. Is that not true? Is that one of them? Probably not. I mean, if we're honest, then why don't we be honest, okay? When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. That sounds to me like an email, (laughs) right? But it's in the Word of God. And can I say this to you? That is as inspired by the Holy Spirit as John chapter 3, verse 16. So it's important. Does it seem all that important? Well, quite frankly, not at first reading it doesn't, at least not to me. Then you get into 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Once again, sounds to me like another email. Um, Now you get into 14, and 14 kind of fits the rest of the book and what we've been studying. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Uh, And 15 is pretty standard if you're familiar with Paul and the epistles. This sounds like a pretty normal closing for Paul. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, I'm going to go three hours on this tonight. Actually, I'm not, but uh, you get my point? Maybe this isn't the most, on the surface, exciting passage of Scripture we've ever come across. But I want to submit to you, it is an extremely significant passage. How can, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there? How can that be, I mean, real significant? Or diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Uh, here's what we do when we read the Scriptures. 
uh, we read out of our culture and we read out of our existence and we read the scriptures out of where we are right now. We, we read the Bible through our cultural lens. That's why we could miss something that's in this text. Um, and it's not just in this text. Go to Romans. Go to the end of Romans. Um, Romans 16. Wasn't Chuck just on this? The end of Romans? See, here's what I'm saying. This is not the easiest stuff to teach and preach. Romans is phenomenal, all the way through Romans. And then you get into 16, and he starts doing all the personal stuff. You know, uh, I come into you, our sister Phoebe. And then you get to three, greet Prisca and Aquila. Then you get six, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Uh, Andronicus and Junius and Pliatus, Urbanus, Apellus. You see, it's just a list of names. Now, now, that can be hard to teach and hard to preach and keep people interested. Because what is the significance of that? I will say this to you. There is great significance to the fact that in his letters, when Paul wraps up, he gets very, very personal, and he begins to thank people. And he begins to express appreciation for people. People that, quite frankly, most of them we've never heard about. Some of them are mentioned in other places, like uh, Prisca and Aquila, uh, Apollos. Uh, you know, we get bits and pieces about some of these people, but most of them we've never heard of. We don't have a clue who they are. We don't know anything about them. You say, well, what's so significant about that? I, I, I have been reading, um, uh, on the way to Winnipeg, I was reading a book uh, by Dinesh D'Souza. It's been on the New York Times bestseller list called What's So Great About Christianity? Uh, I didn't read it on the way home from Winnipeg because I was, my hands were frostbitten and I couldn't pick up the, the book. But uh, on the way up there, I was reading the book. Uh, you know, in the last several years, there have been uh, several books written by militant atheists attacking Christianity. Uh, Sam Harris uh, is one. Um, I'm blanking on the other author. Christopher Hitchens. Uh, several others. And what these guys are doing is, they're basically saying that not only is there not a God, and not only is Christianity not true, but in essence, a lot of what they're saying is that Christianity is responsible for a lot of evil in this world. So they're really coming after Christianity. Well, this guy, Dinesh D'Souza, has written this book in response to these guys. And basically, um, showing just how absolutely wrong they are, and he hits it from a number of different angles. Now, I haven't read the whole thing. I'm a third of the way through it, but what I'm seeing so far, this guy's good. This guy, is, this guy verges on brilliant, and not only is he brilliant, he can communicate. That's, a lot of guys are brilliant. A lot of guys can ace the SAT test. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever met these guys? They're just geniuses but they got the personality of a piece of wallpaper. This guy can communicate. Now, I want to read a section to you out of this, and when, when we start reading this, you're going to say, what does this have to do with Titus? I, I, I want you to do me a favor. I'm going to show you how this relates to what we just read in Titus, and I think we're going to see something here that perhaps we could miss, but i got to set it up if you'll give me a little bit of time. You guys okay with that? Yeah. What are you going to say, no? Okay. We're going to set it up, and you're going to see in, just, in, just a, in about three minutes how absolutely relevant what he is saying is, even to what's been happening in the last two or three days in our culture. He says, um, I want to examine a second major feature of Western civilization that derives from Christianity. Okay. You guys have heard of Western civilization, right? It used to be when you went to college that you had to take a course in Western civilization. I remember driving down the Bayshore Freeway on the San Francisco Peninsula about 19, 
80. It might have been 78. It might have been 81. But somewhere in there, I'm driving down. I'm listening to uh, uh, KCBS radio. And, they, and something came on, and a reporter was at Stanford announcing that Stanford University was changing their core curriculum, and no longer did students have to take a course in Western civilization. That was a big deal. I was kind of shocked by it. I was kind of stunned by it. And I, but, but then I thought, well, it fits with where we're going as a country. See, when you study Western civilization, which is what we are, you know what you're studying? You're studying biblical Christianity. I have a question for you. How come nobody on your street is picking up their family and moving to Cuba? Not Puerto Rico. We got someone here from Puerto Rico. There's a big difference between Puerto Rico and Cuba. You don't know anybody. You, you've never met anybody in your life that is entertained going down to Cuba. They got nice beaches. You know, they got a lot of old classic cars. <laughs> There's more 56 Chevys in, in uh, Cuba than anywhere else in the world. How come nobody picks up their family and moves to Cuba? You want to know why? Oh, but let me ask you this. How come all kinds of people have risked their lives to get out of Cuba to come here? You say, what does this have to do with Titus? Hold on. Just hold on. Why are people trying to get out of Cuba and come here, but nobody's trying to get out of here to go to Cuba? Well, it has to do with the foundation of the nation and what they believe at their very core. And the reason that people from all over the world have gone through great personal sacrifice in order to get over here is that we're part of Western civilization, and Western civilization is based on biblical Christianity. Isn't that interesting? Uh, back, let me give you another quote from D'Souza. I don't even think I gave you the first quote yet. I gave you a sentence of the quote. This will tie in with Cuba. He says, The modern idea of freedom means the right to express your opinion, the right to choose a career, the right to buy and sell property, the right to travel where you want, the right to own your own personal space, and the right to live your own life. This is the freedom we are ready to fight for, and we become indignant when it is challenged or taken away. This modern concept of freedom we inherit from Christianity. That's what's significant. And can I say this to you, that the majority of people in the New Testament epistles, the majority of them did not enjoy those freedoms. See, we're reading this from our lens and from our angle and from our freedoms. The majority of them didn't have those freedoms. They estimate that between a half to two-thirds of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves. Slaves don't have the right to choose their own careers. Jews, uh, uh, slaves don't have the right to own property. You say, well, we had slavery in America. Yeah, we did. And that was a huge blight upon us. We, 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 we certainly had some errors, and we certainly didn't get everything right, and that was one that there was a lot of hypocrisy because a lot of guys, even the founding fathers in the North that had big issues about slavery and even wrote about it and spoke out about it, the majority of them were slaveholders. So we had some issues not saying we're perfect, but I'm saying there's a reason people have wanted to come to this nation. Okay, you guys staying with me? I mean, are you really? Yeah, I, uh, you don't have to be nice to me. If you're bored, just raise your hand, and we'll excuse you, all right? Now stay this. You can't come back ever, but we'll excuse you, okay? Watch this. I want to examine a second major feature of Western civilization that derives from Christianity. This is what the philosopher Charles Taylor calls the affirmation of ordinary life. This is good. It is the simple idea that ordinary people are fallible. 
And yet these fallible people matter. In this view, society should organize itself in order to meet their everyday concerns, which are elevated into a kind of spiritual framework. Now catch this. The nuclear family, the idea of limited government, the Western concept of the rule of law, and our culture's high emphasis on the relief of suffering all derive from this basic Christian understanding of the dignity of fallible human beings. What does that mean? It means, it means we're flawed as humans. We have a sin nature. We don't always do things right. We make mistakes. We, and this chapter is based on Romans chapter 7, verse 19 that DeSouza writes. He quotes verse uh, 19 of Romans 7. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. You know, Paul's great dilemma in Romans 7, which is our, our dilemma. We all struggle with this. Why? Because we're fallible. We make mistakes. We're sinners. But we're made in the image of God. Um, That's why we don't put absolute power in the hands of an individual. We have, see, in our system of government, They put in checks and balances. Why did they put in checks and balances? Because when they consulted the Bible, they found out the condition of the human heart. That's why a lot of people wanted to come to this nation. Because there was justice that was offered. There was freedom of speech. There were certain things. Why? Because you didn't have a tyrant running the nation. Why? Because of the ideas that were used to set up the laws. Ideas have got to come from somewhere. Uh, you'll hear this every once in a while whenever there's a discussion. Someone will say about a new law or something. They'll say, you're just trying to legislate morality. How many times have we heard that? Do you guys know that every law is legislating somebody's morality? The Archbishop of Canterbury, a couple of weeks ago, made the statement that he felt, and by the way, the archbishops in England used to be Christians. <laughs> they used to believe the Bible. But the Archbishop of Canterbury basically said, and you probably read this, that he thought it was all right and inevitable for England to allow for Sharia law on their shores. Sharia law. I don't want Sharia law. Because Sharia law is not part of Western civilization, therefore it is not part of biblical Christianity, therefore it's unjust. Sharia law is Muslim law. So Flower Mound, the guy has two teenage daughters. They're dating guys he doesn't want them to date. So what does he do? He kills them called an honor killing. Not according to Christianity. That's called murder, you see. Every law is going to legislate somebody's morality. I don't want Sharia law. I don't think you want it either. Okay. Um, we, have law, we, we have speed limits. You guys notice these things? So you go 70 miles an hour, uh, it says 70, and you're going 85, and you're going to get pulled over. And uh, it doesn't matter uh, if, if a cop's a good cop, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to get a ticket. Uh, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter where you went to college, it doesn't matter if you're, uh, you can trace your lineage back to the Mayflower, because you see... We have, our laws are based on a principle that that laws apply to all people apart from privilege. Now stay with me here. Stay with me here. Um, He says, this gets really interesting, and here's where we're going to start relating it to Titus. Okay? Because not every culture is set up like that. Not every culture is set up what he calls in regard to the affirmation of ordinary life. You know, even in the history of Britain, in the parliament, you have a house of lords and a house of what? 
Do you know that it used to be in Britain, all they had was a house of lords? The wealthy, privileged, gentrified class ruled. And quite frankly, not only did they make law, they were above the law. But then things changed in England. I'll get to that in a minute. He says, I also, you guys still with me? Okay. I also want to focus on the Christian exaltation of the low man, L-O-W, the common man and the underdog. These groups were not favorites in the world of ancient Greece and Rome. Homer ignored them in his epics, concentrating entirely on life among the ruling class. Lesser men appeared, if at all, as only servants. Aristotle, too, had a job for low men. It was called slavery. Aristotle argued that with low men in servitude, superior men would have leisure to think and participate in the governance of the community. Aristotle cherished the great souled man, S-O-U-L-E-D, great soul. Aristotle cherished the great souled man, catch this, who was proud, honorable, aristocratic, rich, and who spoke in a low and measured voice. That reminds me of the governor of New York. Does it not? Now catch this. Watch this. This guy's good. Jesus was not such a man. Jesus was born in a stable. When you guys have ever spent any time in a stable? When you guys ever grew up on a farm? How many of you guys grew up on a farm? Yeah. Did you wipe your feet before you came in? We're, we're hoping you did. <laughs> stables are nasty places. A lot of nasty work goes on in stables. You, you, you don't want to spend a lot of time in a stable. It's not a lot of fun to work in a stable. Jesus, D'Souza says, was born in a stable and lived most of his life as a carpenter's apprentice. He usually traveled by foot and occasionally by donkey. As Eric Auerbach writes, Christ had not come as a hero and king, but as a human being of the lowest social station. His first disciples were fishermen and artisans. He moved in the everyday milieu of the humble folk. He talked with publicans and fallen women, the poor and the sick, and children. It may be added that Christ came to a bad end on the cross, hanged like a common criminal, and flanked by two actual uh, criminals. Now watch this. Yet Auerbach notes that despite Christ's undistinguished origins, his simple life and lowly death, everything he did was imbued with the highest and deepest dignity. The fishermen that the Greeks would have treated as figures of low comedy were in the Christian narrative embroiled in events of the greatest importance of human salvation. Now watch this. The sublimity of Christ and his disciples completely reversed the whole classical idea. In other words, if you're a common man, if you're an average man, you're not landed, you're not gentrified, you're not wealthy, the Greeks despised you, the Romans despised you, what did Jesus did? They completely reversed that idea of the Greeks and the Romans. Jesus did that. Suddenly, aristocratic pride came to be seen as something preening and ridiculous. Christ produced the transformation of values in which the last became first, and values once scorned came to represent the loftiest human ideals. Charles Taylor notes, as a consequence of Christianity, new values entered the world. For the first time, people began to view society not from the perspective of the haughty aristocrat, but from that of the ordinary man. This meant that institutions should not focus on giving the rich and highborn new ways to pass their free time. Rather, they should emphasize how to give the common man a rich and meaningful life. This all came out of Christianity. See, we assume we're going to have certain rights because we're Americans, right? We assume that because this is how we were born and raised. But where do those rights come from? If you were a Greek and you were a common guy, you didn't have 
have them. If you were an average Roman, you didn't have them. So where did all this stuff come from that we enjoy? It came from Christ and his teachings and that he valued the common man and the low man. You know what I think is interesting? Dinesh D'Souza was born, not in the United States, he was born in India. He's got a different perspective than the average American. Why does he have a different perspective? Well, you're born in India, you got a different perspective. Uh, he says this, the Christian priority of, of extending respect to ordinary persons while taking into account human failings and shortcomings can also be seen in the emergence in the West of new political institutions. These political institutions existed nowhere else in the world, and they did not exist in ancient Greece or Rome. What he's saying is that the representative democracy that we have came out of the Bible. Look at that phrase. The Christian priority of extending respect to ordinary persons. Hey, stop and think about it for a minute. India. What do you know about India? They have something called the what system? The caste system. Uh-huh. And if you're at the top of the caste system, you're called a Brahmin. You're wealthy, you're landed, you're privileged, you go to the best schools, you have servants, you have slaves who exist so that you're freed up away from the common necessities of life in order to think great thoughts and have plenty of leisure time. The people at the bottom of the caste system in India are called what? They're called untouchables. They're called untouchables. And theirs, theirs is a horrible existence. Do you, know, do you know that for the first time in the history of India, there is a challenge that is being put to the caste system? And do you know where the challenge is coming from? From people who've embraced biblical Christianity. Isn't that interesting? Why is that? Because there is a respect and there is an appreciation for the dignity of every human being. Why? Because the scriptures say that we are all made in the image of God. So you see, guys, there are foundational principles that we enjoy in our nation. And my point that I'm trying to make here is that they didn't enjoy in their nation. So, so stay with me here. So let's go back to Titus. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Um, in other words, what he's saying is, hey, Titus, well, I'm not sure which one of these guys I'm going to send to you. Because, hey, you know what? Um, it would take months and months and months to get a letter back then. Uh, some of you guys remember Pony Express. <laughs> Pony Express was a big deal because it used to take months to get a letter from the East Coast to the West Coast. Pony Express came along, and suddenly you get a letter just about anywhere in the continental United States, one place or another, in about 10 days. That was huge. That was huge. Well, Paul didn't have that. So Paul, he, you know, he's trying to anticipate what he's going to do. So he's, and it's not clear to him yet, but he's got to send this letter. So he says, hey, look, it, I'm going to send Artemis or Tychicus to you. I'm not sure which guy. But when they get there, then you come, and I think I'm going to be in Nicopolis, and, and I'm going to spend the winter there. And by the way, this wasn't a great place to spend the winter, but it was where Paul could be more strategically placed for his ministry. And then look at this, verse 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And then, and then think back to the end of Romans. Why is he mentioning all these individuals? He's, they're going to need assistance. They're going to need help. Uh, you see, back in that day, you didn't worry a lot about hospitality. You didn't worry a lot about help. You worried about yourself. Why? Because they had a different worldview. That's why the story of the, of the Good Samaritan is so significant. Once again, we're in our culture, and we read the story of the Good Samaritan. And, say we, and we kind of think, well, sure, because we'll see 
somebody on the side of the road, and they've, uh, you know, uh, there's a lady, and she's got a flat tire, so you'll pull over. You know why you pull over? Because you've been raised in a Christian culture. But back then, the story of the Good Samaritan, Samaritans didn't do what that guy did because they didn't have the respect and they didn't have the dignity. And what he did was just unbelievable. Once again, what I'm trying to show to you is we read the scriptures through our cultural grid. But there's a reason we have the cultural grid and enjoy the life that we have. And the reason we enjoy the life that we have and have the liberties and the freedoms that we have is because of what Christ instituted. And that became the basis for our laws and for what we believe. And as a result, we enjoy freedoms that if we're not careful, we're going to lose. Because we're departing from the Christian roots that made us great. Are you guys with me? That was overwhelming. <laughs> Why do we have what we have? Uh, Hegel said that history teaches us that men never learn from history. You know, so much of this Bible is history. And we've got to understand this Bible, and we've got to understand where we came from. We, we tend to get so focused, and we tend to get so honed in on our lives and what's going on right in front of us on our 90-day goals that, that we forget we're part of a, of a link of generations and that we're part of something and that God has a plan for history and that God is moving history along. But, but we, we, we tend to have a lot of stuff on our plates that we're dealing with and a lot of issues and so we, we rarely, we get so honed in, we rarely step back and look at the big picture. you, you got to ask yourself, do you, do you guys ever have concern about where we are as a nation? I mean, do you? Yeah. And so, so you know, we got all the, the political stuff, and, you know, we got all this stuff, and when you think about that, and you know who you like and all that, and everybody's got their guy they like and all why? Well, because we're concerned, and we want to put guys in that hold to this or whatever that. See, well, why do you hold to the things that you hold to? And why do people look at you and think you're nuts? Because they don't hold to what you hold to, you see. That's why. This, is, this, this stuff all comes from somewhere. Now, the question is, where does it come from? Um, this, this concept, this concept of, of the ordinary life. Francis Schaeffer says this. Uh, Schaeffer wrote a little book called The Christian Manifesto that was a pretty significant book. He says this, talking about America. The basic problem of the Christians, and he wrote this in, uh, give me a second. He wrote this in, was it 70? Hold on, I'm there. I'm almost there. He wrote it in 81, Okay. And then I lost my spot. Here we go. The basic problem of the Christians in this country in the last 80 years or so in regard to society and in regard to government is that they have seen things in bits and pieces instead of totals. They have very gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, and finally abortion. But they have not seen this as a totality. Each thing each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. They have failed to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in world view. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way that people think and view the world and life as a whole. There's been a huge shift in America in how we view the world. When we read the scriptures, as I've said, we read the scriptures from our point of view, from our culture, from our worldview. But there's been an incredible shift in America in the last 80 years. There, there's an incredible shift that's going on right now. In re, um, where is this? Uh, George Barna has done a lot of research on the evangelical church in America. And... Uh, Jeff, I met a guy named Stuart McKelvey who works with Prison Fellowship a lot in Canada. And uh, he teaches in, is that the Centurion program? 
that, that uh, Prison Fellowship and Chuck Colson have going on. And he gave me um, his notebook that he teaches up there in Canada. And a lot of people come to the Worldview class because there's nothing else to do up there in February. That, that was a joke, guys. Uh, he gave me his notebook, and I, and I was reading this on the plane coming home. And one of the things he talks about worldview, we all have a worldview. Well, probably if you're here, you got a Christian worldview. One of the things he points out, and Barna has researched where the evangelical church in America is. Basically, what George Barna has said is that when you look at the evangelical church in America, when you look at people that go to the big megachurches, we got a lot of megachurches in Dallas. We had a lot of big megachurches across the South. You got big megachurches in Southern California. Barna says when you survey people that attend those churches, they call themselves evangelical, Barna says that basically when it comes to an orthodox biblical worldview on the fundamental doctrines of Christianity, people that identify themselves as evangelical Christians, 9% have an orthodox biblical worldview. 80, 91. I was not a math major. 81. In fact, when I preached the other day, I was talking about Joseph and they were slaves for 400 years. I was off by 100 years. Anyway, I'm not a math guy. Um, 91%. 91% of evangelical Christians that are in the average evangelical megachurch do not have an orthodox biblical worldview when it comes to Christianity. Why not? Because they've been influenced by, by the world, you see. Now, we have a lot of churches. We have liberal churches. Uh, D'Souza makes a point that the concept, one of the, con one of the great concepts of Christianity is the Great Commission, is that's why we send missionaries out to these different cultures, and people find Christ, and their cultures are changed. Uh, what he says about the liberal church is that the liberal church are the missionaries of the world to the orthodox church. The, the liberal churches are the missionaries from the world to bring worldly ideas into the church and dilute the orthodoxy and truth of the scriptures. Isn't that interesting? And, and according to Barna, what the significance of this is, is that pretty much 90%, and he makes the point here, that this is true across the board, except in Texas and North Carolina. It's a little, it's a little bit better in Texas, and a little bit better in North Carolina for some reason. So what about California? They're kind of average. The New England states are off the charts. Only 4% there would have a biblical worldview, you see. Why is that? Well, because we're not grounded in the fundamental concepts of this book. That, that absolutely ran counter to the Greeks and to the Romans. And here's the significance of this. When the church is not in tune with the biblical teachings. Now, follow me through here. When the church of Jesus Christ is in America is not in tune with the reasons and the doctrines that are given in Scripture that, we, that are based on the truth of the Word of God, when we get away from those, what eventually is going to happen is that the freedoms that we enjoy are going to be gone because they're based on biblical truths. And when you lose the biblical foundation, you might be able to keep it going for a while, and you might be able to live off the capital of the past, like some guy, fifth generation, who's living off his great-great-grandpa's money, but eventually it's going to run out. And that's where we're headed. Is this making any sense at all? Okay. I thought Benny Hinn walked in the room. This thing was starting to fall over. Okay, I'm going to put that there and put that there. And I got a lot of stuff here, guys.
Um, I'm really, I'm really kind of uh, struggling here just a little bit because th- this stuff is th- this this stuff is significant, uh, and, and and we ought to be a little bit concerned because there, there's a reason we're dealing with the stuff that we're dealing with. Um, let me go back to Schaefer. Um, why, ha- why have we enjoyed what we have enjoyed in this nation? Um, there, um, we go back to the founding fathers. Schaefer mentions a guy by the name of John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon was the only pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence. John Witherspoon was president of Princeton University, which used to be a Christian school. And isn't that interesting? I find that very interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that's, that's interesting, and you've got to be aware of in this culture, is that when it comes to worldview and teaching fundamental truth, if, if, uh, if you spend $40,000 a year and send your kid to a school that has a name like Southern Methodist or Texas Christian or uh, uh, Harvard, you know, what, you know what Harvard was set up for? For, for? for the training of ministers and the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Harvard got off the deep end, so they decided some conservative Bible-believing Christians said, we're going to start a school and we're going to stay true to the Word of God. So they named that. Anybody know? Named that Yale. And then they went off the deep end, away from biblical truth. So some guys said, we're going to start a school and we're going to stay true to the Word of God. So they started that school and they called it Princeton. All the way down the line. See, there was a biblical foundation and then what happens? You depart from the foundation. And when you depart from the foundation, you're in trouble. Because ultimately, you're going to lose your freedoms and you're going to lose the things that we enjoy in this country. Um, John Witherspoon had a great influence. He was a highly respected man. He mentored James Madison. Um, Witherspoon had been... uh, He had such a great impact on the founders... But Witherspoon had been influenced by a guy by the name of Samuel Rutherford. Samuel Rutherford wrote an earth-shaking book called Lex Rex. You were just talking about that at Starbucks last night, weren't you? Lex Rex. What does that mean? Lex Rex, now follow me here. Lex Rex means that law, Lex Rex means that law is king. When he came out with that book in England, it, it, it actually, it, it, it was an earthquake because when he wrote that book in England, what was true was not Lex Rex, what was true was Rex Lex. Rex Lex means this. Rex Lex means that king is law. Back in England in the 1600s and before then, the king was the absolute sovereign. He made laws, he could change laws, and that's how things worked. And so you had the gentry, if you were part of the aristocracy, he would give you land and he'd give you a title. Oh, and by the way, if you're a common guy, if you're a low guy, you're just a regular guy, and your kids are starving, and you go trap a rabbit, and they catch you, they'd hang you. Because, you see, you didn't have any rights and you weren't important because that rabbit belonged to the gentry, to the house of lords, and you were worthless. Samuel Rutherford, who was a committed, Bible-believing, fire-eating Scottish preacher, wrote this book that, I mean, he stood against that, and he said, it's not Rex Lex, it's Lex Rex. The king isn't law. Catch this. Law is king. And how he reasoned was this, from the scriptures. He said, you know what? Jesus is the king of what? Jesus is the greatest king. When Jesus came, 
and went to the cross. You know what was said of Jesus? Jesus fulfilled the law in every point. And then he reasoned, if Jesus, who is the king of kings, came and fulfilled the law, didn't put himself over the law, he fulfilled the law, then earthly kings should not be above the law, but should be under the law. It was an earthquake. And that concept, um, that concept had a great uh, impact on John Witherspoon, who impacted the other founders. A lot of those guys were Bible-believing Christians. Then you had a guy like Jefferson, who was a deist. He wasn't a Bible-believing Christian. You know that Thomas Jefferson wrote his own Bible? Did you guys know that? He went through the Bible, and he edited it. The stuff he didn't like, he'd rip it out. He edited his own Bible. Not not a Bible-believing Christian. But even Jefferson was influenced by a guy named John Locke. And John Locke had been influenced by Rutherford, and a lot of the principles that Jefferson came up with, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That man is created with what? Inalienable rights. All right, now stop and think about that. Jefferson said that, okay? And everybody said, yeah, we believe that. All right, now ask yourself this. Where did the rights come from? God. They came from God. This is why, now follow me here. This is why in Titus and in Romans, most people had no rights. Because they came from the the idea of the Greeks and the idea of the Romans. But Christianity came in and turned that thing on its ear. No, no, no. People have rights. Why? Because they're, they have dignity. Why? They're valuable. Why? Because they're made in the image of Almighty God. This stuff of rights, it had to come from somewhere. Did it not? That's why William Penn said this. If we are not governed by God, then we will be ruled by tyrants. Interesting. So the founding fathers... Where'd they get this stuff? They got this stuff from Locke and from Rutherford, and where'd they get it? Oh, by the way, and then you go back to the Magna Carta. You remember that? Or did you cut class that day? You remember the Magna Carta? And all of a sudden, the Magna Carta, for the first time, you had some deals with King John and the whole thing, and they forced him, and so all of a sudden, people had some rights that they didn't have before, and you had to acknowledge certain things, and then you study what happened in England, and see, did all this happen overnight? No. This is why, guys, you get, see, we get so focused on where we are right now, but God's moving, and there's stuff happening, and God's overseeing the whole process. You know what Francis Schaeffer said? Let me look at my watch. I just thought tonight we'd go real easy and go real light, be real relational, and I hope really encouraging and uplifting to you. If you're not depressed yet, give me two minutes, and I'll have you depressed. Because Francis Schaeffer said this. Here's what Francis Schaeffer said. Francis Schaeffer said in his book, The Christian Manifesto, and let me tell you something. This guy, um, this guy was used by God in a great way. Uh, Schaeffer was a Presbyterian pastor who after World War II uh, went to Europe, sent by the denomination, a conservative Presbyterian denomination, to assess the needs in Europe. Because they were asked the question, what can we do in Europe to help? Because Europe's been devastated by the war. Um, oh, by the way, don't let me forget Schaefer. Okay, Bob? Don't let me forget because I'm going to make a point that I should have made earlier. But don't let me forget Schaefer. If I'm not back on Schaefer in two minutes, okay, flag me, all right? Why did Schaefer go to Europe to assess what was going on and what the needs were? Why did he do that? Why is it that whenever there is a disaster anywhere in the world, why is it that whether they're for us or against us, why is it that this nation sends relief? Why is it this nation sends money? Why is it that this nation sends food? Why is it this country sends doctors? And why is that? And why is it that Saudi Arabia doesn't? Why? It all comes down to worldview 
into beliefs. You see? And see, we've lost a lot, but there's still that semblance in the culture that the ordinary man, that the low man, that the hurting man has dignity and we need to go and assist. You see, that comes from somewhere. Thanks. I'm going back to Schaefer. Thanks for reminding me. Um, So Schaefer goes to Europe to assess the needs. Why did he assess the needs? Because you've got a Christian group of people that wants to know how they can help. So he goes over there and he says, there are orphans everywhere, the cities are devastated, da, da, da. And more importantly, there is this teaching called neo-orthodoxy and there's liberalism in the churches that are saying the gospel can't be trusted and the Bible can't be trusted. So he comes and these people are dying on the vine spiritually. By the way, by the way, We had World War II. Why we have World War II? Because of what happened after World War I. And what happened after World War I was that you had some people in Germany that, was, that were in pretty bad shape. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead, and then I'm going to come back to Germany. I'm jumping all over the map here. Francis Schaeffer ultimately said that he believed... America would wind up in a dictatorship. And people read that in the 80s and they go, you out of your mind. You know what Schaefer said? He said he believed this, that America would ultimately end up in some kind of dictatorship, some kind of elite would be running the country. He, he said it could, come from, it could come from the left, it could come from the right, it could come from the Supreme Court. But here's what he said. He said he believed that Americans would go along with it and not have a problem with giving up their liberties. And the reason he said that, he says, I believe there'll be some kind of nationwide crisis. And the reason they'll give up their liberties and give it to a tyrant or to a dictator is that if they can be promised two things, they will give up their rights. If they, if they, will, give up, if, if they will give up their rights, if they can be promised two things. Number one, personal peace. If you can guarantee my personal peace, I'll give you my freedoms. Secondly, if you can guarantee me affluence. I'll give up my rights. Now go back to Germany in the 20s and 30s. A guy steps up, completely lawless, and basically promises when there's inflation out the wazoo going on, I will ensure to you your personal peace and your what? Your affluence, and they give their rights, and you know what happened. So that's why we have World War II. Schaefer goes into Europe, sees the needs, comes back, reports to the church, and says, we got to do something. And they said, why don't you go over there with your family? So he went over there, and he was in Europe and started the Brie Fellowship. And he, was, and, and he had to rethink his faith. And as a result of doing that, he wrote all these books, and he impacted a generation. But Schaefer could see what was coming. He could see what was coming. Because he took a step back, and he looked at history, and he looked at where we were going. So, we're in a very unique situation, guys, because if Barna is right, in our culture, those who claim to be Christians, basically, when you get right down to it, Bible-believing Orthodox Christians are 9% of the culture. You got a lot of churches that are more influenced by the world than they are by the Scripture. So what does that mean for you, and what does it mean for me? You know what it means? We need to live our lives according to the Word of God. We need to live out our Christianity. I want to go back to Titus 3, verse 14, as I close. He says, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. All the way through Titus, it's good deeds, good deeds. Why? Because Christ has changed my heart. And if Christ has changed my heart, it ought to come out in my behavior. By the way, how many of you guys have had a surgery in the last 12 months? Let me just see your hand. Okay. Where'd you go to have your surgery done? Hospital. I mean, these aren't hard questions, I know. <laughs> you went to a hospital. You, you, have you ever thought about where the whole concept of hospitals came from? came from Christianity. You know where the whole concept of Christianity, uh, hospitals came from? One of the places it came from was this verse. 
Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. When someone's sick, when someone's ill, when you've got an epidemic, when you've got a cholera epidemic, who steps in? Christians. When you've got the black plague going on, who steps in? Christians. Why? Because they're applying the Word of God. This can be a little overwhelming, guys, but I want to say this to you as we wrap up Titus. Paul was writing to Titus, who was on the island of Crete, a godless, reprobate, self-indulgent, affluent, lying, deceiving culture, just like we're in. And what does he say? Set in order what remains. Did he say, hey, Titus, get real depressed? Hey, Titus, get real discouraged? No. You know what he said? He said, set in order what remains. Oh, and by the way, Titus, he said in chapter 2, he says in verse 7, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. You know what, guys? We started out this study a few weeks ago by saying God's looking for a few good men. God's looking for a few good men that will live out their Christianity. You say, well, Steve, this is kind of overwhelming. How do I do that? Wherever God's planted you, wherever God has put you, are you a physician? Live out your Christianity. Are you a CPA? Live out your Christianity. Are you a plumber? Live out your Christianity. I, I, that's all we can do. We treat people with respect. We honor people. We value people. We can't do it all ourselves, but God has placed us. You know what, you know what else you can do? You can love your family. Because, you know, the Greeks didn't love their families. They used their families. The Romans didn't honor family. Christianity honors family. And you see, guys, these are the things that make a difference. Not the big things. It's the little things. Uh, you say it's overwhelming. It kind of is overwhelming. Let me tell you something. God's running the show. And it doesn't take a lot of salt to make a difference. And it doesn't take a lot of light to make a difference. You follow Christ where you are. And I'm going to tell you something. They're watching you. They're watching you. And you can make a difference as you follow Christ. That's the hope. Whenever nations crumble and they fall apart, there's always a group of people that stay faithful to God. Did you know that historically? There's always a group that stays faithful. You know what they're called? They're called Baptist. <laughs> no, that's a joke. <laughs> Although the Baptists think that is them. <laughs> you know what they're called? They're called the remnant. The remnant. And God always has his hand on the lives of the remnant. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. That's where I want to be. I want to be part of the 9% that's following him. Because no matter what comes, his blessing will be on my life. Does that encourage you? Good. Because we want to be encouraged. Let's bow our heads. Lord, this little book is about living out our faith and doing good deeds. Not because we want to be forgiven, but because we have been forgiven. Yeah, Lord, we're concerned. We see the culture falling apart. We, we see foolishness in laws and a departure from the things which were based on your word, and we get very concerned, and we get concerned for our children and for our grandchildren we don't have a clue what they're going to be facing. Well, actually, we kind of do. So, Lord, may you use us as an example to them of what a godly man should be. Uh, we're not going to be famous. We're, we're not going to be on the cover of some magazine. We're just ordinary guys. But Christianity is the religion. It's, it's the faith of the ordinary man because you love ordinary men and, and you assign us to our post and then you use us for your glory. We're, we're the kind of guys that are in the back in the last chapter in Romans. 
We just get a little mention. Some of us don't even get a mention, but you know who we are. So help us to be found faithful and use us for your glory to set in order what remains. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.